I really resonate to the idea that joy and suffering are inextricably intertwined. And for me, I don't feel much predominance of high arousal joy states that might be idealized but aren't realistic, but more so the deep content of doing purposeful work with others, that common goal that you were talking about is a type of joyous energy that really I find rejuvenates me and helps put stresses in perspective. And so I most definitely have situations that I can never change that bring me sorrow, sadness, and that actually is something that helps me refocus on what I do have. Gratitude, gratitude as an antidote to stress, the appreciation of the beauty and love that is there, and really the privilege in life of getting to work on something that you care about so much. So many people don't get to choose their daily work that way. So I really appreciate being able to work with people on issues that I care about so much, and I get so much joy from that. Greetings, and a warm welcome back to Intersections, where our aspiration is to dissolve the boundaries, dissolve the boundaries between science and spirituality, East and West, profit and purpose, inner and outer, any of these confining silos that limit us from seeing life to its fullest possibilities and seeing our own potential to its fullest possibilities. Today, I have in our midst Dr. Elisa Apple, who in so many ways epitomizes this quest for intersecting of dissolving boundaries. And you will see why as we get into the conversation. She is a scientist, but with a very deep spiritual core. She is someone who's been able to dissolve these boundaries between the present, the here, the now, and the physical signals we are getting today and the future, the decades forward into a life where you know our aging process, for example, might manifest. Dr. Apple is the professor and vice chair in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of California in San Francisco. She is an internationally renowned health psychologist. She has conducted pioneering research into how stress impacts our health all the way down to the cellular level. Her award-winning research has been featured in TEDMED, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and many TV and science documentaries. Along with the Nobel laureate Elizabeth Blackburn, Dr. Apple is the co-author of a New York Times bestseller, The Telomere Effect, and her next book, The Stress Prescription, is scheduled for release this month. So, Dr. Apple, it is a joy and a pleasure to have you in our midst. I just love the name of your podcast because it describes what we should be talking about these days instead of siloed information, really the full picture, as full of a picture as we can get of reality and of how humans need to be guided at this moment in time. You know, I'm so glad you say that. You know, I, I remember early in my life going to school, 
everything was organized on the basis of courses or subjects, you know, or topics. And each of them was meant to be like almost like a discrete and separate thing. And you had to kind of wear that like biology had today and that math had like an hour later and the history had. And then I look at history and how some of these times of tremendous creative ferment that have happened in the advancement of civilization and history, you know, whether you look at ancient times and the Indus Valley or ancient India or, or then Egypt or, or Greece or, you know, what have you, or then the Renaissance period or what have you, you know, there've always been periods where, you know, like-minded people have come together from various professions and disciplines and cross-fertilized ideas and aspirations and sought to manifest the same timeless eternal truths in unique ways in their in their own sort of dispositions and disciplines. But um, but that cross-ferment is, is like so important, isn't it? It is. It's where the magic happens. <laughs> You were just telling me about a visit you had to Dharamsala. Here you are as this esteemed scientist doing path-breaking work in science, and yet you spoke about so fondly about a visit to this uh, remote little you know community in India where the Tibetans have uh, come and settled, and where there is one luminary. Perhaps you can talk you know about your conversations with him you know for a moment. The His Holiness. It has been such a broadening experience to learn about different ancient wisdom, ancient wisdom about our body, about our mind, and then put on a scientific lens and just ask, can we, you know, this sounds right. Can we look at this and measure this with our materialistic methods, if we have measures of these things, and show and reveal how true this is from the Western scientific materialistic perspective. And so that's kept a lot of us busy. <laughs> and I think what's remarkable is that the science of joy and happiness and the science of health both validate some of the fundamental truths that the Dalai Lama has been talking about his whole life. So for example, when we were in Dharamsala, we were there for a mind and life dialogues, and he's been in dialogue with scientists for 30 years. And that, that knowledge base of science has been guided by his wisdom, by ancient wisdom from Indian sa sages like Shantideva, his, his own teacher. And so much of the science has evolved to illuminate some of these principles. So the first thing he said to us was, the best medicine is inner peace is ease, is inner comfort, not outer comfort. And that's what I've been studying for, you know, 25 years. And that's where the happiness science is right now. It's understanding that our happiness, when it depends on external circumstances, comfort, getting to this next achievement, this next level, this acquisition, that is the, the lure of happiness, the illusion of happiness, that doesn't manifest. And some of the unhappiest people are searching for happiness in those ways. You know, I, I love this fusion that is starting to happen between these two disciplines that until recently were seemingly at odds with each other. And, um, you know, I shared a reflection about that in, in, in my book, um, In a Mastery Outer Impact, that um, both science and if you want to call it the domain of religion and spirituality are evolving and reforming themselves in some beautiful ways, right? Science is becoming so much more open to these like deeper intangible things and finding a way, striving to find a way to get material measurements, you know, out of them. And then on the other hand, you know, spirituality to the extent it was, you know, in the past represented more through religion, you know, tended to 
take a kind of just a dogma-based, you know, approach at times. And it's opening itself up to recognizing that actually, if you really look at the timeless truths and to me, like the pure words of the prophets, they were always, you know, not as much about power and privilege lying at some, you know, lofty levels of institutions and religion, but really the divine spark that lies within each of us and the quest and the responsibility and the opportunities and possibilities there are for us to, you know, find a way to um, to a more enlightened place, you know, from from within, from being guided by our own inner voice. And, uh, and to that end, opening itself up to more of a logical, fact-based, experiential, experimental quest that people can take on, which, you know, as you perhaps know, is, is kind of at the foundation of practices like yoga and Buddhism. And to me, really, even the mystics across Christianity and Judaism and Islam. Yes, beautiful. And and how you mentioned some of the universalities over time and over history um, that humans come to that are from different cultures or religions or perspectives, but they're it's about the the commonalities of of being human and trying to transcend our more base or survival animal tendencies to to really be our best conscious selves. And that's a, another thing that we know and feel, which is we come from, we all have our lineage and we come from our different histories and with different epigenetics and we're shaped by our the narratives as well as the transmitted biological influences. And yet above all of this, across these religions, we have these vast commonalities and universal truths about humans that transcends religion. And that's another thing that His Holiness has tried to remind us of so many times, which is this is not about religion. This is the religion of kindness that we need to embrace. And you are, along with the spiritual truth-seeking, a scientist. You know, you're a truth-seeker from the scientific, uh, you know, uh, path or pathway as well. And to that end, I, I want to kind of uh, highlight for our listeners one of the really beautiful, powerful, yeah, just breakthroughs that uh, you and your, you know, research partners have, have arrived at. Usually, it's not easy to take things that have to do with uh, the less tangible, you know, the more ephemeral, uh, the more metaphysical, and translate them into uh, physiological evidence about what's happening to our bodies. Uh, and I feel like with the, you know, telomere discoveries that you've had, you're kind of, you know, helping us get there. You're kind of getting science to help inform and guide and show physiological glimpses to us of things that are otherwise coming from, from more subtler planes. And I'm thrilled about that. So, and cheering on, you know, you and other scientists who in the years and decades and centuries ahead keep helping close the gap between the metaphysical and the physical. Could you talk a little bit about um, your work on telomeres and, and um, you know, perhaps in a maybe just basic kindergarten way, you know, help our listeners understand the beauty and the breakthrough of what you've discovered there about, you know, about what it takes to age gracefully. It's been exciting to be able to be at the stage in science where we can just take blood and learn so much about someone's biological age, mental health, physical health. And when we look inside the cell, there are many different aging 
mechanisms that we can study so easily now. And so, as you mentioned, I've been studying telomeres, one mechanism of aging, for about 18 years, and we know a lot about them now. And there are other aging mechanisms in the cell, like the epigenetics and the level of inflammatory reactivity of a cell and the level of mitochondrial health in a cell. All of these mechanisms are one system, really. They're related to each other. They talk to each other. When one goes bad, it makes the other sick, and the cell can age prematurely. And so it is, they tend to tell the same story. And the story is that when we are exposed to chronic toxic stress, stress that goes on and on, or traumatic stress, and we are imprinted with some post-trauma symptoms, especially during childhood, these are related to accelerated aging according to our telomere length, according to our epigenetic clocks, and often our level of inflammation as well. And we recently, several years ago, looked at the mitochondrial activity and found that chronic stress dampened those batteries in our cells, the energy that we depend on for everything, for stress and for for every every move we make. So there we're just so fundamentally wired from and connected from the cell, from the molecular mechanisms happening in our cells, all the way to our mind states. The hard part has been, well, what can we measure about our consciousness and mind states? And so we do the best we can. Neuro, you know, neuroscience has has been very illuminating about brain pathways and brain structure. And then we can try to measure things like mind wandering. I've been measuring positive and negative mind wandering. How much are you present and engaged in what you're doing versus how much are you, you know, somewhere else paying attention to thoughts like, I wish I was somewhere else. It's a form of suffering, really. And that is related to shorter telomeres, to have a lot of that negative mind wandering. The meditation field has been really making a lot of progress. We will always be hindered by the fact that we can teach people meditation, but we don't know what is happening in their mind during it and how to measure states of consciousness and mindfulness. So we we have our measures, they're limited, and we do pretty well given what we can measure. But of course, we're missing aspects like what does it mean to be grounded and embody our emotions and to rather to really be in touch with our emotional state to read our emotions in our body we know these are important we know these are contemplative this is training that we get from contemplative wisdom that helps us navigate stresses in life and i think some of the very interesting edges of how we can understand the mind body connection better are really going to understanding how much do we feel interconnectedness with a world versus in a small self state when we're ruminating and anticipating the threat state. It's really a barrier to us seeing reality as it is and seeing how we're connected to both each other, to our body, to each other, and to the earth. And that just the concept of interoceptiveness has also become quite important in mind body medicine, the ability to be aware of our body states and be able to report them. And that's yet another skill that meditators are very good at. They're, they're training in interoceptive awareness. Yeah, I'm trying to unpack. There's so much uh, 
that you've just shared, it seems like from what you're saying, as we get to higher levels of attunement and awareness, you know, it starts to harmonize and in touch first with our own bodies as perhaps the initial first home, you know, that our spirit is, you know, settled into. And then from there in our communities and, and the world at large, right, at some level. And perhaps at some point it will also expand to a place where we recognize that this is the way through which we get our planet a little bit more harmonized and attuned with the rest of the universe. Who knows what that yeah. relationship is like, right? Yes, exactly. And how did we get here where we have, you know, created a sick planetary health? Part of, it's the opposite of what we're talking about, the, the threat state that makes us view in-group, out-group, be competitive and think that we need to acquire more and more and more from the earth, the extraction that we've done in the earth. So th this is why so, so many of these universal truths point us to compassion, to interconnection. And we've, we've lost that. We so easily lose that when we are stressed out, when we're in a stress state. And we can't really see that that reality that's not material, that's not so visible and measurable. So that's why, partly why I wrote the stress prescription, because most people are much more stressed out on a daily basis than they need to be. And that can really impair our ability to feel connection to our body, to other people. And, and so just even acknowledging how serious stress is for impairing our lives. Why would we want to live every day in a rush and, and focusing on, you know, threats in, which kind of blind us to all of the beauty and miracles in life? Yeah. So I want to go into, you know, stress at a broader level and immediately applicable level for any or all of us, as you've so beautifully, you know, laid out a seven-day kind of prescription, you know, to more, as you call it, joy and ease right, in, in your book, the, the Stress Prescription. Let's get there in just five minutes. You know, before we get there, just to close out on this topic of the, you know, the telomere research and aging, one of the things I, I find very valuable there for us to reflect on, regardless of the age we're at today, you know, you know and some of our listeners could be in their teens or 20s, is that, you know, we're all going to face that moment. We're all going to face that moment. And it's so easy to just deflect that kind of thinking or, you know, think that that's a different group of people. You know, that's my grandparents. You know, that's my yeah. parents. You know, it's not me. You know, it's not me. And I, I sometimes use this analogy, you know, with my students. I say, imagine if, you know, I was a travel agent. I came to you and I said, like, hey, you know, COVID is, you know, wrapping up. Now you can travel again. And there's this amazing Disney-like amusement park that I can send you to. And, you know, let me tell you what you're going to get there if you were willing to go there, you know, and, and, and you know, you'd start there and then this amazing ride will come. And then after that, you can have this beautiful walk and then there'll be this parade and then there'll be this amazing ride. And they'll say, oh, wow, really? Yeah, okay, cool. And then there'll be this lunchtime with beautiful, bountiful lunch. And then there'll be this. And, and <laughs> then in the last hour, things will happen. Uh, and then you leave and they'll, and they'll might ask me, okay, well, what things will happen? No, no, we don't want to talk about it. No, no, but what things will happen? No, you'll, you'll enjoy the rest of your time. Then it'll be an amazing time. Let's not talk about the last hour. Oh, no, no, no. I want to hear about the last hour. Like, wouldn't you want to know about the last hour? And what if they say, oh, in the last hour, you lose a lot of people in your friend circle who were there with you and it might be a struggle. There might, in fact, be a little bit of pain. There might be a lot of pain. And so you leave then with just a lot of pain. <laughs> you know, who would want to go on that ride? You know, all of us would say, 
forget the rest of the joys. I mean, I don't want to like end with like an hour of like torture. (laughs) So if we can look ahead and think about the arc of the whole day for an amusement park day, you know, why don't we do that for our own lives and say, why would I want to end up, you know, in the last decade of my life really struggling with things like my mental health, my physical health, my incapacity to handle the fact that I've had to walk away from positions of power and privilege and visible, you know, kind of glory and all of that. I mean, I have to gracefully find my way to let the light within me finally quieten down and exit from here to wherever it is, you know, that I might end up next. Uh, why don't we pay attention to that as much? So so I love that about your work, that, you know, your, your earlier work. I know that you broadened it to really think about this in a much more immediate context for us, but, but that's important too, isn't it? For us to be planful and anticipating. I mean, that's the whole Buddha story. The three great signs, right? Prince Siddharth, and there he was, a prince, doing really well, cruising through life, beloved wife and son and loving parents and power ahead of him. And then he saw old age, disease and death. And just seeing that in others, he anticipated, oh, wow, that's going to come to me too at some point? I didn't realize that. But if it is, then I need to find an answer to making that process be something that is joyful and um, something I can embrace and accept and perhaps even move on from. So anyway, so... Yes, yes, yes. And, and, And that part of the answer is reminding ourselves on a daily basis, disease, aging, and death are real. They are inevitable they can be part of my day you know the that idea that living with the reality of death can help us live a deeper life is something we do not like you said we do not practice that here that is the most uncomfortable concept to to imagine death you know death practices to imagine death to remind ourselves of death and yet that is where the light is shining on how we should live right now. Do you use death practices? And how often do you think of the impermanence of this life with this body? Are you asking me, Alyssa, or is that a rhetorical question? No, it is not natural. And so I'm I'm asking you because it would need to be a conscious effort that you have gone there and incorporated that as, as part of a mind habit or a, a view. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was very young when I got very fascinated by death. India India is a culture where it's a little bit more sort of comfortable, you know, and kind of out there. And, um, you know, even the way we basically deal with the process of um, cremation, for example, it's a very, you know, direct experience, very visceral experience, you know. Uh, I lost my father a few years ago. And, you know, I remember that moments where we are cremating his body and then Early the next morning, you go to the cremation ground and as, you know, members of the family in particular, because it still has a little bit of patriarchal kind of um, structures in it, the, the sons go. So I went and um, I was picking up, you know, his ashes and uh, there were even some little, little you know, remnants of bones that hadn't fully burnt out. And then you put them in a casket and then you hold that and you, you know, you take that to a holy river in India and, you know, surrender it there so that his uh, remains of his body are, you know, uh, getting, you know, taken away by the spiritual waters. But when I was picking up those ashes and, you know, finding those little bones and I was being guided to doing that because I hadn't done that, you know, as much in the past with any other loved one, I was feeling, you know, almost like there was like a smile coming to my face, even with all the grief and the sense of loss, you know, which, which is there for my father's, you know embodied being that had now you know gone and the spirit had sort of moved on 
but there was a smile coming around. She's like, Hitendra, do you realize like how seriously we all take this body and how seriously we all identify the individual with the body and you have done it for your whole life. Your whole life, you identified your father's spirit with this body. And do you realize how in an instant it can be taken away? And don't you feel that your father hasn't disappeared? There is no way that force, that power, that grace could have just disappeared in an instance. That just cannot be a law of nature. But yes, the body can disappear in an instant. And it has there. And it's trying to teach you. You know, so those are the thoughts that were going through my mind in that moment. And um, it, was, it was a beautiful lesson for me. It was a beautiful lesson for me just to be reminded of activating one's beliefs. I mean, I've always had these beliefs of the transference of the spirit, you know, over time, but the impermanence of the body, but having to experience that is a powerful lesson. So yeah, I mean, I found in my life, um, I've actually written about it, the power of using death as a, you know, as a teacher, you know, as a way to constantly be reminded about looking for the timeless truths rather than the ephemeral. That's such a beautiful example of seeing his bones and that earth material is this my father? <laughs> you know, that's a that's another way to that I use to remind myself. I mean, these bones are earth. They're part of earth. They're not they're they're not Elisa Apple, the construct of walking around with this body and this identity. You know, this is one view, one mindset, one way. And then if we can reshift our lens and realize, wow, I get to be this person with this body that is of the earth has these, you know, lineages and it will go on and on the lineages, but through earth and earth material. But really it's all about the preciousness of getting to walk the earth in a body. Body has this expiration date. And so it helps us just refocus on today. That's all we that's all we're certain of. And the future is always uncertain. It's volatile uncertainty we have now with the way the world is is even stronger. And I think just being now in my second half of life and having seen more death and sickness, having people I love die early, tragically, suddenly, commit suicide, dealing with mental illness, you know, all of that just is such phenomenal reminders to to appreciate being able to live right now and being able to live now when the earth needs such love, purpose, compassion in our own ways, whatever we can do in this fear that we can influence the bubble that we live in locally, but now we're so connected. It's it's quite mind-blowing to me. Wow, that is so inspiring. Yeah, that is so inspiring. You reminded me of another metaphor that I find very helpful, Alyssa, on this front. And that's really this, like this Shakespearean kind of, you know, I thought about all the world's a stage, you know, and all men and women are merely players, as he says, and they have their exits and their entrances and, and all of that. And, you know, the other day I was just walking here in Manhattan and I was just trying to kind of like visualize that for myself, that this body, this role, this name, Hitendra, and all of that uh, is an identity I've taken on to play a certain role at this point in the stage and arena of the earth and the planet, whatever's happening here. And I meant to do my best to play a good role. And then to your point, you know, the what did you say? So so thoughtfully, the body has an expiration date, you know? And so the, this role has an expiration date, you know? <laughs> yes. So, we, and yeah. we all do, but we just, you know, it's still hard to talk about. Yeah. And it does help us focus on this kind of living our purpose each day. The telomere story points 
to this too. So as you were saying, the telomeres are, in a sense, a crude little clock of projection of how many times can these immune cells keep dividing. And that tells us a little bit about the other cells that are, you know, the telomeres across the body are correlated. And so if you have short telomeres in what we can see so easily, the blood, we tend to have short telomeres in other, in the rest of the types of cells in this body. And so we can get a glimpse if we care to. What we've learned from the studies, we know that health behaviors, what's good for the heart, what's good for the brain is good for the telomeres. So again, just an example of it's really these forces of health, of feeling safe, of keeping down the stress response, the inflammation, the cortisol, the oxidative stress. These are the common path to staying well. And when we when it goes awry, when we don't have when we have toxic health behaviors or especially toxic stress, which shapes everything, shapes our health behaviors, we're creating this pro-aging environment. And so the telomeres are a very crude indicator of how soon people will get disease and enter the leave the health span and enter the disease span and how soon they'll they'll die. But at an individual level, it's not so helpful. They're not very accurately measured and predictive. And I haven't measured mine, but I do know I've had a lot of wear and tear on this on this car, on this body, and uh, trauma and chronic stress and situations I can't control. And so it really helps me focus on the challenge of living your best life despite sadness, despite suffering, despite having situations that you can't possibly change that that cause you sadness. So how do we live with that? You, you know, really, I mean, all of the Buddhist wisdom has helped me so much. And it's really comes down to health span and purpose at a daily basis, not focusing on longevity. I mean, longevity is beautiful and it can come with taking care of our of our bodies, you know, extending that expiration date. So there's the beauty of focusing us on now in the day is that at what we do each day really does matter to the body. And we measure that in different ways. And it's exciting to see how things like mitochondrial enzymes respond to mood, positive and negative mood, at least in our cross-sectional studies. And we see that telomerase responds to stress as well. And that's a enzyme that can change within minutes. And telomerase is an enzyme that protects telomeres. So there's all these all sorts of systems in our body besides the stress response that show us how each day we're nudging our our cellular well-being with our lifestyle, with our mind. And that is great because we have more control than we think. And yet we can get so easily focused on how many years we live and wanting longevity for this particular body. And so the anti-aging field has really become a little bit bifurcated where much of the field, the money-making part, is focused on how can I extend my longevity? Can I live to 150? And the other half is focused on can we reduce suffering and improve the health of everyone, the public health uh, aspect of it. And so I'm kind of so somewhere in the middle where I study that, you know, the individual and how we can slow aging, but really focusing on health span, quality, purpose. Yeah, yeah. You know, it reminds me of this uh, quote from Viktor Frankl. I don't know if you're familiar with him, you know, man's search for meaning, the Holocaust survivor, great psychotherapist, right? Logotherapy. 
and he said he said you know we are creating a world uh, where we all have like means to live but we don't necessarily have meaning to live for and one of the breakthroughs so so one, one thing i like to do is like study um study people from history who left like a luminous mark you know in some regard right like a gandhi a martin luther king mandela mother teresa i don't know roosevelt you know people like these and um one thing that struck me at some point in studying them is that uh, and which really changed my whole attitude towards towards life in some ways is that i used to think that the ideal life is like you said a long life and one where you work really hard you know and then at some point you earn the right to retire to play golf you know to rest on your laurels to bask in the glory of what it is that you've done you know something and then uh, i guess the first transformation i went through is that i read this book on michelangelo i was in florence after i got inspired i read this book on michelangelo and i saw how he kept striving to do his life's best work up until his late 80s and uh, you know i forget it was late 80s or early 90s when he passed away and he outlived like 14 popes and you still have these unfinished works of sculpture that he left behind because like for him he found his passion and after that why would he not want to do that till his dying breath you know he just wanted to constantly do that So that was one aha for me which is like actually speaking I got to find that kind of a purpose in life where I would want to do it in the best way I can until until my dying breath right mm-hmm. and then the next evolution of that which has come about is um I saw with both people like Martin Luther King Lincoln Gandhi they were developing a lot of enemies you know with the kind of positions they were taking for the quest they were going after and so they were constantly you know at threat like somebody might assassinate them you know gandhi was for example asked like you know how do you feel about the fact that you know you could be you could be assassinated for the for your views and thoughts and all that and he said i'm not afraid at all because like i know that basically at any point where the you know creative power out there feels that whatever it is that he or she wanted from me when that work is done then they'll pull me away like why should i be here for one more moment you know after whatever it is of service that i had to perform is done you know and if you think about it alisa all three of these people martin luther king lincoln gandhi achieved a certain 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 sort of milestone right of course it wasn't like the complete ideal perfect society that they wanted to create but he achieved a certain milestone right lincoln had his moment with the civil war coming to an end the union army uh, you know uh, kind of uh, arriving at that victory the congress being able to pass a constitutional pass a constitutional amendment right to abolish slavery gandhi seeing india through to peaceful you know resolution of his independence struggle and then yeah there was like all this warring and bloodshed going on in hindus and muslims but that was coming down you know at the time that it was 1948 now and then martin luther king having achieved some phase you know of that struggle for civil liberties and then all three of them get nipped in the bud their lives right like uh, relatively prematurely they get taken away by an assassination so anyway but their lives are beautiful we look back at their lives and we celebrate their lives and and you know they didn't have to necessarily live till 95 100 to be able to have had a good life they had a beautiful life it's a very dramatic example yes impact and pur- purpose um versus you know expiration date <laughs> yes yeah. or you know longevity yeah. yes that's a beautiful example so let's come now to more about the stress prescription one of the things i really like about your ideas and thoughts on this topic lisa is that you highlighted how you said like look stress researchers are often focused on big stressful events but then you say it maybe far more telling to focus on how relaxed or vigilant one is under normal circumstances at baseline 
to see how we are holding on to stress in our minds. Yes. This is a point that just fascinates me. And it's a recent development in the stress field to become aware that it's not necessarily the most revealing and interesting thing to see how stressed does someone get in the middle of a stressor, a life event, or a lab stressor. We really focus on these controlled situations and love to stress people out and see how high their cortisol is, their nervous system, how quickly they recover. And that is, we have learned a lot. That is interesting to see. We know a healthy response is a big stress response and a quick recovery. And that's that's youthful, that's picture of resilience. But what happens when we think we're relaxed? What's happening right now in the bodies of all of our listeners with us to their stress level when nothing is happening. That's the window into what we're carrying, into unconscious stress, into our stress baseline. And so my stress baseline, for example, is has been very high. I would go through years of not managing the day so that it has periods of ease and of true present-minded living because I view time as a commodity. I mean, I still do. I try not to. This is a conscious effort to change my time use. But, you know, filling time so intensely to get more done. So many discoveries we made, so many things we want, roles we want to fill in life. It's very easy to be rushed and overdo it. And then everything is just a higher baseline of stress. I mean, I we measure daily stress in people. It's one of the most common complaints. I can't, you know, too much to do. I'm rushing. I'm late. And all of that's just fabricated. We, we create our, our day and our schedule mo- mostly when we have control over our job. And so we really want to know how much stress are you holding right now when you don't have demands? How clenched are you? How much tension do you have in your body? And what's that about? Let's name it. Let's ask, is there something you're aware of? Are you worrying about? Or often it's this more pervasive uncertainty stress of the future. We all have that. As a human mind, we don't like uncertainty. We want control. (laughs) And so that is something that we can actually name and recognize and then actually release some of that unconscious tensing up we have about the unknown future. And so that's a practice, that's a meditation, that's a check-in we can do several times a day and it doesn't take long to just ask, what am I expecting right now? Can I actually breathe slower? Can I release what I'm carrying? I love that. I'm going to tie it to um, you know, some, some ideas that I've been inviting our MBA students at Columbia and executives that we teach at Mentora Institute to consider. And the language they're drawn to is around leadership, you know. And um, so I've sought to bring a fusion between leadership and if you want to call it spirituality, right? And so the way I do that is to redefine what it means to be a leader. As opposed to it being an outer dispensation, it becomes an inner choice, you know. And it's about um, taking on any cause or any moment in your life, any meeting, any project, any responsibility, any role, and seeing it through the lens of some common shared purpose that you're seeking to, you know, manifest, you know, between you and let's say your friend at dinner, the common shared purpose being human connection, 
joyous sharing and memory building for the future. Or it could be a moment of parenting, or it could be a big speech you're giving at work, or a hard conversation you have to have with a subordinate. And you're all of that. There is a common purpose of what you're trying to get to. And then can you bring out your best? And can you help the other person bring out their best? You take some ownership also of doing doing your best to bring out their best. And and that's it. That's great leadership, <laughs> you know, having that common purpose and seeking to bring out the best in you and the best in others. And and then I say to your point, but it's not just merely about, you know, trying to focus on these leadership moments, because when you do this, then life becomes leadership. And then essentially what you're trying to do is actually put more leadership into every moment, you know, mm-hmm. and that's kind of like what I'm hearing from you, right? Like, when, actually, it's not these epic moments of stress, but these everyday moments and how much grace are we bringing to these everyday moments? And, you know, another way I think about it is that I feel like, you know, that's the samurai kind of discipline, which is, yes, you want to be doing amazing magical things in these battlefields, you know, of yeah. life. But the point is that unless in the background, backstage, in moment by moment, you know, aspects of your day, you're doing things to constantly hone that craft and sharpen, you know, that 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 sword, you know, when the battles come, you're, you're really not fully prepared for it. I love that. How much grace can we bring to the moment? And yes. the point that it really is about this dynamic balance of, you know, leading, being on the battlefield and restoration and recovery, restoration, rejuvenation. And it's the and our bodies need and our minds, you know, we need that balance of both positive stress and really letting go. And that is a key to dealing with really difficult challenges that we need both. It's not all muscle. It's partly seeing what we don't control and being able to breathe into that, being able to accept that. Something that came to mind when you were, you know, we were talking about what does it mean, you know, leadership and the way you've defined it. And so, so much focus, focus on the common purpose, the connection, working together, heart connection. That's very beautiful. There's also a maybe less glamorous leadership model that I'm sure you have also analyzed when it is, again, it's a bit of that competitive acquisition uh, model of, you know, using people and time as a commodity. And I remember, you know, I love retreat centers. That is when I can really get in touch with, you know, what we were talking about, really understanding and seeing reality as it is and reflecting on life and stepping back from the, the routinized life. And when I was young, I grew up in Carmel, which is near Big Sur and near Esalen. And I was in the hot spring tub with a bunch of adults who worked there for years and years. And they shared with me in their conversation something I never forgot, which was that so much of the time they're trying to help someone come in their much, very people of means, very wealthy people who have spent their life acquiring wealth with, you know, complete adrenaline and competition focus. I mean, these are CEO, C-level people leading large companies, and they come toward the end of life with the worn out body, with conditions, and then their goal is to restore, regain their health because they have all the money they could hope for. And the sadness of 
seeing that over and over and and wanting to say to them, you didn't get the message early, you missed the boat, those sacred moments in every day of spaciousness, of purposeness, of ease. Wow. How can you regain that? I have a bit of a more optimistic view, which is even in late life, every day matters and we're just, yeah. health is so iterative that we can always make improvements. But it did just strike me of, of that pattern of, you know, yeah, the loss yeah. to try to regain with the insight that came too late. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that is so powerful. That is so powerful. And, and and I agree with you. I mean, I think we all have to embrace that paradox, which is on the one hand to do that fast forwarding and visualize and look at those periods of a life and get motivated and drawn to wanting to really, you know, in a sense, like um, recalibrate the present moment in a way that will allow us to create a pathway towards a much more healthier outcome at that stage. And yet, on the other hand, regardless of where you are and what stage you are, you know, be in a position to make peace with the past, right? And then just seek to maximize the possibilities of the moment because the human spirit is just so, has so much capacity to um, to renew itself, right? And um, regardless of what pathway you've had in life, there is at least the meaning and the possibilities left for what you're going to manifest. I mean, I'll give you an example. My father, you know, I, I was very blessed to see when I was growing up, you know, a, a deep spiritual quest that he and my mother took on and had a big influence on my own life. And, uh, at the same time, he came from a little bit of a command and control kind of a culture, you know, both in the patriarchal system. You know, I remember when we would go and sit on the dining table, if anybody was sitting there on the one end of it, you know, he would say, you know, you need to get up from there. That's the head of the family. You know, that's my share. You know, so there was that that part to him. And yet, you know, he was very sweet, very loving. And we had, we had a beautiful, you know, unfoldment over the course of our time together in our relationship. And at the same time, he also was in the Indian police. And so, again, command and control was kind of the structure that he was used to. And, and therefore, you know, he was used to exercising power as a way to help manifest whatever good purpose he wanted to in a given moment. And then as he was aging and retired and everything, you know, he started to realize that that thing just wasn't working as well. Because people were not willing to, at this point, really just accept and agree because it's coming from the force of authority, you know, from him. And he had to build a new muscle, you know, the new muscle, much more empathetic engagement and finding a way to tell the story in a way that actually appeals to the other person's sensibilities and values, meet them where they are and sweetly and gently draw things out of his daughter or of me, you know, et cetera. And, um, and this was all happening, you know, as his, you know, 70s and early 80s were unfolding. And then um, I remember this one beautiful moment where one of the things his wife, you know, my mother had always wanted, you know, from him is just more you know, more of a sense of, you know, ornamentation in life, you know, for her, like gifts that like, you know, special days like birthdays and anniversaries mattered a lot. And, you know, and he'd come from a very, very basic culture growing up in um, really, you know, kind of, a you know, underprivileged community and, you know, small village. I don't even really know what my grandfather's, you know, vocation was, but it was very humble. And, uh, and so there's one time after all these years of never really engaging with that, he, uh, you know, calls her in and he wishes her warm and happy birthday and hugs her and gives her a beautiful lavish gift that uh, you know she was in tears you know about that and and then he died like six days later because that was his last uh, right. you know last few days on earth which we were not aware of it was actually he was in you know pretty good health and he was in his mid-80s though uh, when that happened uh, so it was all very beautiful in, in many regards but I use that story to tell myself that you know a heart is always expanding even until it's lost beat, you know. <laughs> and that's what you do. You you help people see 
that there's an unlimited path of growth, that you don't just finish a degree and then you have you know a knowledge expertise and that's it, that you're equipped for life. You say something really beautiful in your book. It reminds me of some things that I've heard from our mutual dear friend, Dr. Dan Siegel as well, about the plane of possibility. So if I were to quote you, you say, the future we are entering requires all our resources to survive to get and to thrive together. And when we can come to a place of resilience and equanimity, we more fully enter an important state called the plane of possibility, where we can break out of our personal thinking habits understand the interconnectedness and see new possibilities. Can you talk about that a little bit? Thank you for bringing out that quote. That's exactly what I mean when I said that daily stress is really impairing our lives collectively. If we can lift the dark veil of daily stress, particularly threat stress, that's where we can live, where we can see more clearly our true purpose and that miracle of getting to have this life with each fresh day so that we can actually be really living our purpose in a way that is manifest for us with what's in front of us. And so maybe that's that conversation and connection and how we're, we're influencing others with ripples of love, compassion, deep listening, advice, support it you know there's so many ways we have influence and so i love dan siegel's model of the plane of possibility because we all have this possibility of living that deeper life and purpose but if we're in a state of stress we don't see it and so we don't actually step into that plane and take the opportunities that are in front of us and so there's this tremendous openness, an open field that is in front of all of us that I really hope that I can step into more in my daily life. And my goal in the stress prescription, it's just simple daily practices, very short, but that nudge us into that state toward the plane of possibility, toward seeing reality as it is with its with this sadnesses we have with pain and suffering, but equally or more so with the beauty of being alive, of nature, of of our compassionate nature as humans. Seeing all of that in front of us, it's so easy to forget that and not see it. And of course the news and the media, you know, point us toward the threat stress mind, the the dark veil, the waiting for for the next thing to happen and wanting to be vigilant and prepared. Yeah, yeah. I um you know, I, I love this thing. Uh, you know, the so what you're saying now is, it, you know, this this notion of like mastering stress is not just a critical requirement to survive, but really an enabler of thriving. Right? This plane of possibility to me is really about maximizing the gain, not just minimizing the pain. Okay. You know, in some ways. And actually, I want to I want to share a, a quick little story with you. Over the last uh, several weeks, I have. Uh, you know, been arriving at the early stages of uh, a, you know, for me in my work, a, a breakthrough really of sorts where I've sought to be, you know, teaching leadership to my uh, executives and to our students. And 
the challenge there ultimately ends up being the last mile, right? You can give people mm-hmm. all these tools, ideas, and inspiration in a classroom, but then you're just like a Broadway performer. You know, you're giving them the high, but then they're leaving, and two years later, it just becomes a fond memory. How do you actually help them get to embody and create like habits and ultimately transform themselves in lasting ways? So that's been a challenge that I've been grappling with over the last uh, you know few years. And I ultimately built this tool. It's a digital tool. And this time around, I felt confident and comfortable in it that said, okay, let's take a plunge. Let's take some risks and actually require my students as part of the grading for the class that they're going to have to just use this tool. And they're going to have to use it eight or 10 times. And what the tool does is that it invites them to take the things they've learned and then plan how they're going to engage in critical events in their life. So let's say there's a negotiation coming up with a business partner or some set of interviews you're going to do or some presentation you have to do or something. You pick one of those events, you set a clear goal for it that I want to go there and inspire these people or handle this conflict better or build more trust with this individual or be able to have a candid conversation about something which is a sensitive matter. You know, typical things that do happen in the workplace and in life. And so they pick a goal from a pull-down menu and then we recommend to them two or three actions they could perform. You know, like appreciate the person before you start the conversation or Mm -hmm. empathize before you actually engage in your agenda or fuse opposites. Find something true in what they're saying and something true in what you're saying, you know, et cetera. So we have a bunch of these things in our leadership, you know, toolkit. And then so, so they get guidance on two, three of these and then they can prepare these. And they're also given an invitation if they want to set like 15 minutes of time on the calendar before the meeting as a pause. They can do a little bit of guided meditation during those 15 minutes on those very actions that they can visualize they're going to use in that meeting. They can set an affirmation and intention for the mm-hmm. meeting. That's it. Then they go in and do the meeting. And after Amazing. that, they review and reflect for five minutes. How did it go? I hope you're collecting data. This sounds absolutely yes. so, so, so that's what I wanted to share with you. We mm-hmm. are literally at that threshold where I've gotten my first data set, right, of about four or 500 of these data points across these students, about eight to 10 events across about 40, 50 of them. Mm-hmm. And as I'm looking through it and I'm seeing their term papers at the end with their reflections, it's blowing my mind. It's blowing mm-hmm. my mind because they are saying like, oh, wow, I never expected it. I never thought that this could do it for me. But I ended up having this breakthrough at the meeting. I never thought that I should actually bring kindness into this conversation, but I did. And this person opened up and, you know, I achieved just so much more than I would have otherwise and et cetera. Right. So I'm seeing all of this happen. And I wanted to share this with you because I think it perfectly plays right to almost like empirical evidence in support of this idea of the plane of possibilities. Yes. Yes. (laughs) The fact mm-hmm. that, you know, while it's true that, you know, it's going to take years for us to fully regroup our brains, right, <laughs> to get mm-hmm. to a, you know, his holiness-like state, right? But the point is, we actually have a little bit of that holiness within us today, and we use it from time to time in our special moments with friends or with, like, a loved colleague, you know, and all that. But then we lose it, you know, from time to time in our <laughs> other kind of, you know, just, you know, just, like, travails through life where we don't realize that actually bring some kindness into that, bring some understanding to that. And when we open ourselves up to that, we pause and do it, magical breakthroughs can happen in the moment, you know? So anyway, so that's, so it's a very emergent kind of level of ideas and thoughts I'm getting. I'm just blown away by this idea. You're operationalizing and concretizing the ability to co-create and, you know, have this emergent work between people I've got to try this. Is this a platform other people can try yet? Yeah, you know, I mean, li- literally, this is so new. My team is mm-hmm. analyzing the data right now. So okay. give me another couple of weeks. I, w- I will come back to you. And, and I do want to mention, I think that this, how we, you know, live in the plane of possibility is 
it's partly the path to having this social tipping point that you were implying of the evolution of our consciousness and how we're ever going to change as a as a larger group. And I really think that it we, because of how our brain works, we need coaching in the moment like that. And the idea that as we're doing our most purposeful work, we can bring all of those qualities into the interaction is exactly on the money. That's just it, on the bullseye. So I'm I'm so excited to to hear about that. Dan Siegel did just publish Intraconnected, which really yeah. is fleshing out the whole paradigm um, that we've been talking about, that we we can see these connections and the intersections that are really there. So it's it's quite a, a case for this paradigm shift. You know, we need to strive to find ways to, you know, combine forces, right? Come together and uh, bring our best gifts and ideas and uh, create some shared platforms through which, um, like you're saying, you know, we can really work on scaling some of this. So I'm inspired by that, you know, I'm inspired by that. And um, uh, thank you for um, tuning in to the possibilities that I'm seeing also in making more practical and just accessible, right? Like some of these, some of these ideas. Um, well, I ended up here because this is what the body's telling us. All of the health literature points to these aspects of emotional well-being, which includes spirituality, purpose, compassion, life satisfaction, quality, social connections, all of these, you know, joys in life that are what is promoting also our body's ability to stay well. And so they're just so connected. And so now, of course, all of our, you know, our dependence on these qualities for saving us and other living living species on the world. The world is going to survive the planet, but um, these are the same qualities that drive positive health that we need to really save our species and save planetary health. It's all arrows are pointing in one direction. Yeah, yeah, very powerfully put. You know, as we get closer to the end of our time together on this podcast, um, first of all, I just want to highlight for our listeners, you know, the power and prescriptive, you know, potential of your book, The Stress Prescription. And for those of you who are interested in more of the whole anti-aging kind of, you know, work and, you know, research as well, then there is the more classic uh, first contribution from Melissa and your popularization of, of science, Good. right, which is the the telomere effect, right? And the stress prescription has, um, you know, so much, uh, you know, just simplicity, structure, practical tools, immediately applicable ideas, you know, around the infusion of greater joy, the taming of uncertainty, a taking of a greater sense of agency within your sphere of influence. I mean, you know, there are so many elements here which uh, really deeply resonate, you know, with my quest for searching for like the timeless truths and success principles for life and leadership. So, I would encourage any or all of us to look into this uh, for yourselves and um, kudos, you know, to you, Lisa, for, yeah, again, continuing to do profound and beautiful science, but also bringing it out in a very codified and practical and engaging and storytelling rich form, you know, that you Perfect. have. Thank you so sure. much. Yeah, yeah. And I did finally develop a website, just put okay. it up, and it does have what well, has the two books and retreats, but it also has updated resources. So, favorite timeless books and retreat centers etc we will share it with our listeners if you 
want to uh, just uh, highlight any other ways that they can access your information. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd love for them to hear that from you. Yeah. And what I meant was not my books. I do have the two books on there, but I also have, a, you know, resources for my teacher, you know, who I've learned from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So as we, as we start closing this out, I, I'd love to turn the conversation a little bit more into your personal journey. You know, by the way, I I, I noticed uh, you you spent time at Woodsall, uh, you know, and uh, when I was studying at MIT, I, there was a friend of mine who was also at MIT, and you know, there's this Woodsall Institute, which is an MIT and Woodsall collaboration, and he used to work there, so I'd made many many trips there. I had fond memories of, of Woodsall, uh, you know, yeah. in my time. You know, can you share with us just uh, some insight into what made and makes Alyssa Alyssa, right? Like so. What were one or two of the most formative influences in your life that ultimately, when you look back and connect the dots, have led you to pursue this path of like a deep engagement with some of the most critical questions in humanity, a desire to serve and support and, you know, advance, you know, uh, human well-being, and yet to do that from, you know, a place of deep scientific rigor and also an embrace of the spiritual traditions, you know, what um, what were those formative forces that have, um, you know, helped you get here? It is most likely this kind of fusion of the environments I was exposed to as a child. So my mother was a, a therapist who was deeply immersed in the human potential movement. So just being surrounded by, you mm. know, books from big thinkers about how we have so much unrealized potential that we can work at, work toward and step into. And then my father's influence brought us every summer to Woods Hole. He's a, he was a biology professor. And so Woods Hole is a, you know, is a marine biology center of the world, really. And so we would, every summer I would be in the classroom learning about organisms and how they survive and looking under the microscope at marine organisms and just the mir you know the miracles of all of those different species and their survival so i think really just the fusion of this kind of fascination with how the mind works and the potential of the mind and how it is intricately connected to our own biological mechanisms that have evolved over time to be so robust and so we'll never stop learning i think about this the ways that our cells are you know infinitely adaptable and how how we age is just fascinating to me it's all it's always been a question of um both curiosity about the mind-body connection as well as delight and interest in how my own bo mind-body connection works i remember discovering different exercises when I was young. My mother was a big TM meditator and she always shared practices with us and my experience of energy or chi in the body from particularly from yoga and movement meditation is very salient to me from a young age of discovering how there's there's power here, there's mystery here in the body that that made me very curious. So I headed off to medical school and I thought that was my path and I just got so entranced by understanding healing and cases across cultures of dramatic healing and the power of beliefs that I took a turn and went into what was a new field back then called health psychology. 
Uh, you have shared with us a uh, little capsule of, uh, you know, the steps and pieces that have brought you to the present moment in this life. My hypothesis, since we are having a fairly open-hearted dialogue, Alyssa, is that uh, there is a, you know, prior chapters to this. You're an old soul and who knows what you've done <laughs> in, in my kind of frame <laughs> of thinking in past lives that led you to be drawn to that environment and those parents and that, you know, capacity in this life to very quickly activate, you know, those impulses that are probably very deeply rooted in you, you know, to want to do this kind of work. And, I, and that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Let's end our conversation then today. And, you know, I, I want to express uh, collectively on behalf of my listeners and myself, debt of gratitude to your parents for, you know, for having been who they are and for having raised you in the way they have that is now manifesting into so much, um, so much support and help, you know, for so many in the world. So many in the world. Thank you so um, much. Well, yeah. my main hat is humility about what we can and can't know. And so I will say I I love your comment and I have no no judgment, no opinion, no insight except for the mystery of understanding our existence, our transmission across deep time and yeah. just humility. <laughs> and yeah, I, yeah. I don't you know, I don't have answers, but I yeah. love to know that all of these are possibilities. Yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful response. It's a beautiful response. I, in fact, in my in, in my book, I talk about how I have been benefited by, um, you know, the contrarian belief that we only live once. Because sometimes when you think in reincarnation terms, you can get a little lazy to say, you know, I've always got my next life and my next life to reform myself, you know. And then when you think about it, no, I only have this life. As Hitendra... In the year 2022, I only have this moment. I, I, you know, this moment will not come. You know, maybe another life will come, but not this moment. So actually putting on that more finite frame can actually be an activator of a greater sense of just deference and appreciation for maximizing the possibilities of the moment, you know. And yeah, you just yeah. said something that I try to hold on to, which is so true, undeniably true, that helps us with our understanding of reality and permanence, which is this moment will never come again. Yeah. This day. Yeah. It's absolutely unique and it will be gone. And so there's the plane of possibilities right in front of us. <laughs> so beautiful. And I wanted to end by inviting you to take one of the crown jewels in your book, uh, you know, Stress Prescription, which is your focus on helping us also think in the right way in our relationship with joy. And you share the story about this uh, beautiful man, Brian, right, who you've known and who I think speaks to that very thing that you talked about, about uh, sanctifying the moment, sanctifying the day. And so I let you choose, you know, which aspect of your, you know, thinking and experiencing around this quest for joy you'd want to perhaps leave as a final parting gift, you know, for our audience, and then they can go back to your book to do more of the reading of this. But uh, some one insight that you can, you know, share as to how to think in the right way, you know, in your relationship with like the pursuit of joy, you know, for any of us, you know, one, one practical piece of guidance or insight. I really resonate to the idea that joy and suffering are inextricably intertwined. And for me, I don't feel much predominance of high arousal joy states that m might be idealized but aren't real realistic, but more so the deep content of doing purposeful work with others, that common goal that you were talking about, 
is a type of joyous energy that really I find rejuvenates me and helps put stresses in perspective. And so I most definitely have situations that I can never change that that bring me sorrow, sadness, and that actually is something that helps me refocus on what I do have. Gratitude, gratitude as an antidote to stress, the appreciation of the beauty and love that is there, and really the privilege in life of getting to work on something that you care about so much. So many people don't get to choose their daily work that way. So I really appreciate being able to work with people on issues that I care about so much, and I get so much joy from that. Thank you for that, Melissa. I think that's a beautiful message for us to close out our leading finite it was uh, and yet so rich time together so you know wishing you all the best in the work uh, and the journey that you're on both personally and professionally i know much good is yet to emerge from all of that uh, for so many of us and we are much looking forward to the continuing trajectory of what you're doing in sure. in, in this very pivotal moment in history thank you for joining us today thank you Great so much you. Yeah. Yeah. this was a, a very different conversation i appreciate you and what you're bringing together so much.